FBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Ahoy, friends, and thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday Follow-Up for Season 12, Episode 35, The Why. This week, we hit the pause button on the investigation into the murders of Becky, Vicky, and John. In a heartfelt episode, Bob gave us the why on the selection of the Pinion Pines case. We heard the emotion, and now we understand the why, which has put perspective and relit the fire into a lot of us. On a special nighttime recording, I'm joined by Bob Ruff and Janet Varney, and this is Truth and Justice. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Alrighty, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, for those of you that are on YouTube, this is, like Zach said, uh, one of our rare evening recordings. Uh, Janet made us record in the evening for no reason whatsoever because mm-hmm. uh, her scheduling conflict wasn't a conflict later. So uh, we forgive you, Janet. I never should have told you. I should have pretended like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you told us that it got canceled. Because I thought already. maybe it would. Yeah. But then, you know what? There are some people in the chat that don't usually get to yeah. uh, tune in because they're at work and stuff. So it's exciting to have. Um, we miss our friends that are usually there in the morning, but we welcome our friends who can't usually make it. Yes, it's nice to see all of you guys. And of course, Janet was just being considerate and offering for us to be able to do it to Wednesday, but we were already we were already committed to this. Uh, before we get, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about before we get into your questions today. Uh, I've got four items of housekeeping before we get into, and then I want to talk about Delphi a little bit before we get into our stuff. Sure, let's do um, it. A couple of things. One, the shirts finally are on sale through... The end of this week. Uh, so we have the the outsider shirts. We have the truth and justice that just say the truth and justice logo on them shirts, and the test the fucking evidence West Memphis three shirts are all available on the website, as well as the uh, the beanies, which are stitch embroidered beanies. They're all on the website. Go buy them, or I'm never doing merch again. <laughs> This is why I never – I forget. I forgot why it's been so long since I've done merch because everybody says, sell shirts, sell shirts. And then I go through all the things to sell shirts and then like 40 people buy the shirts and then it's not enough to hit the minimums that we need. So uh, go buy a shirt. They're on sale. Get them and uh, you'll have a nice little Christmas prize for anybody that wants to wear a shirt for the podcast that you listen to and they don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great sales great pitch. commercial yeah you know, uh but yeah go to just right through truthandjusticepod.com uh there's a button at the top that says shop hit that it'll take you right in there and there's a bunch of different options uh so buy some shirts um they're marked down we don't really make much off the shirts i just want to hit the minimum so that the printer will print them so that yeah. i don't have to just like return everything because we didn't hit the minimums for the shirts uh this is listen people if you want an ahoy shirt you have to show me that you're going to buy some shirts if I put some shirts up this time. <laughs> Don't and you hold the these people hostage. Listen, no Ahoy shirts for you guys <laughs> unless you buy the Truth Harsh. and Justice and hey, the other shirts. Team Zach, they want the Ahoy shirts. Yeah, I know they do. I, they say they do, and then we'll put them up and 10 people will buy them. Anyway, shirts are available. Go get the shirts. Uh, through the I'll, I'll keep it open through because we were a little delayed getting the West Memphis 3 ones up. So I'll let it run through the weekend. And then uh, Monday, I'm shipping the orders off, and so we will uh, have those done. Also, today, the day this is episode, this episode is dropping, uh, which will be Friday the second, Obsessed Fest 
2023 tickets go on sale. Oh, wow. I am certain they are going to sell out. If you have ever gone to CrimeCon or anything like that, and if you ever wanted to go, these are much cheaper than CrimeCon. Um, Obsessed Fest is going to be in Dallas next year. It's the weekend of like October 22nd. Uh, I'll be back again. We're going to bring some more people. Um, try to get Zach and uh, Janet maybe to come with me this Jack time. Jack and Janet. If I know, heels. I'm coming. Jack and Janet. No, he said it right. But <laughs> I I like to think that when we travel together, we're Jack and Janet. I'm Jack fine and with Zanet. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the dynamic trio, uh, I, I think, will we'll be there. We'll try to make that happen. But um, those tickets go on sale. And, and I don't get anything for this. I don't have a code for you or anything like that. I just think it's an amazing festival. That uh, is the best time that I've ever had in any kind of convention like that. And they're just amazing, lovely, inclusive folks. So uh, go get them. They're on sale today, December 2nd, which is Friday when you're hearing this uh, in Dallas, October 22nd next year. And like I said, I'm guessing they're going to sell it pretty quick. So if you're interested, jump on there and get them. Uh, So that's thing two. Uh, Thing three, Southern California people. I'm coming to town. And uh, I'm dragging Janet and Dr. Shiloh out with me, and we're going to be doing two events. We're planning two events. We don't have all the details yet while we're in town. So I'm flying out to Palm Springs on December 11th, which is a Sunday. I'm going to be there through Thursday. Uh, I'm thinking probably Tuesday we'll probably do the event in Palm Springs, you think? Yeah, I think that makes sense because we'll have, like yep. settled in and stuff. And Yeah. So we're looking at, if you're in the Palm Springs, Coachella Valley area, we're going to do in that area on the Tuesday, which will be the 13th, I believe, uh, we're going to do basically just a meet and greet there. We're going to try to find a bar. I've got a place in mind I need to verify. We'll put all the information out on social media. Um, but that, uh, that'll that be a, a meet and greet. Everybody just come in. We'll hang out, You know, have a drink, get to know you guys, shoot the shit. Then the next day on Wednesday – we're traveling up into L.A., and we're planning if if Janet and Dr. Shiloh are able to get the arrangements made of doing more of a, like a live show panel type thing up in L.A. on Wednesday the 14th. So, again, those things, we don't, none of this is nailed down, but just letting you know so you can kind of mark your calendars if you're down near Palm Springs, Coachella Valley, Tuesday evening uh, the 13th. And then Wednesday evening, the 14th, we're going to be up in L.A. somewhere and try to do something there. Um, so that stuff is coming. So just mark your calendar for that if you're in the Valley. And let us know. on like Hit us up on social media or whatever. Just give us an idea if you're if you're going to attend something like that so we have an idea of, of numbers. I know there's a lot of you there. Um, and that is – oh, uh, Zach and I are doing a thing coming up. It's, it's a ways away in February, but uh, – we're gonna do we're gonna do a, a comedy thing. <laughs> Me and Zach are along with a couple of other people. Um, I'm excited. Yep. Um, so a lot of people were asking about audio from or video from the Obsessed Fest thing. I don't have that, and I think they're putting it on their Patreon or something like that. Uh, but I said we're gonna we're gonna try doing some shows here and there, and we have a place that's in Southwest Michigan, small town called Baroda. Uh, it's gonna be February seventeenth. Uh, I was going to give you my website where you can go get tickets for that now if you want to because it's a pretty small venue. But Janet, during the Patreon hour, discovered <laughs> an error on the website <laughs> that I need to fix. Some uh, call it an error. Some call it a delicious treat. <laughs> but I'll get by Friday. It'll be taken care of. So if you are anywhere around um, uh, Southwest Michigan and you'd like to see there's uh, my brother's going to be there. Zach's cousin, Max Tidy, who's an actual comic, is going to is going to do a set. And Zach and myself, it's at a uh, the Chill Hill Winer Wine Bar, Cider Bar type place. Wow! Um, Wait, way to th- represent. I've only been there once. Do they have anything besides wine and cider? That's what I was getting hung up on. Yeah, but I mean, you could have just at least just called it Chill Hill Winery. The actual um, name where Chill- we'll be performing February seventeenth. Yeah, February seventeenth. If you go to Bob, I'll give you the, the website now if you want to get in there because, again, there's only 80 seats. Uh, it's BobRuffEvents.com. You'll see the – and also, by the way, that's where you'll find the information about the meetups and stuff. I just made that page so we can put stuff in there when we're doing like meetups and meet and greets and things like that. So uh, at Bob Ruff – and if you're on mobile, 
don't hit the menu button at the top <laughs> until I have time to <laughs> delete off the stuff that came with the Everyone template. Everyone will. Everyone uh, will. <laughs> Josh is about 30 minutes from South Bend in the YouTube chat. So uh, I think those were my four uh, four housekeeping things. Uh, and then other than that, oh, before we get into our episode, there's been an update in the, in the Delphi case. I'll let Zach uh, explain what happened today. Yeah. Well, it kind of got leaked without anybody really knowing, but they did end up releasing the probable cause affidavit for Richard Allen, which is on on November 22nd. There was a hearing. We weren't sure if it's going to be released. They made a big deal about it not being unsealed and released. So this kind of snuck out. I didn't know that they were going to do it, honestly. And when it came out, it's a little disappointing, to say the least. Yeah, and I don't know. It might have been leaked early. Um, but it was the, the orders in there from the the judge ordered it, denied the prosecutor's motion to seal it, and that's why uh, why it came out. But um, I read it, it's only it's eight pages. The eighth page is missing from every single yeah, copy I, that I found. Every copy I've found, the eighth page is missing. Um, but I don't know if that's just a, a typographical error. If there's really not an eighth page, because everything seems to be there. But yeah. what we have is is uh, a little disappointing, and and it sounds like. All right, I'm going to go on the record here and off the record or whatever you want to say. This is not related to truth and justice. Please do not take this out on truth and justice. The words and opinions of Zach Weaver do not reflect truth and justice, NBI Studios, Jan and Barney, Bob Ruff, or anything that we are associated with. Go ahead, Zach. We're on your, right. we're on your side. All right. This feels like incompetence by ISP. I am so fucking mad right now about this whole issue and how much, you know, what they said they have. They've had since the beginning, and I cannot, I am boiling mad right now about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. do you think they're going to come forward and sort of, now that they know that it's out there, do you think there's going to be any kind of attempt at damage control? I mean, they've been under scrutiny and been so criticized for so long, and I'm just wondering if they are going to feel uh, any kind of responsibility to sort of explain why um, it appears that everything uh, in the affidavit is all referencing sort of old pieces of evidence and not with no particular reason that we know of that action took place, you know, many years later on that self-same evidence without anything new. Yeah. To, for those who haven't read it, like, read it, let me just real quick kind of break down what it, the, the basics of what it says. The names are redacted, um, but like on the day the bodies were found, uh, they interviewed several people that were at the park on the walking trails and near the bridge that day. And they they talked to, I think, was there three or four witnesses, I think, that all had said that they saw, and, and these would be, I'm assuming, where the um, the sketches came from, but they all said that they saw a guy where some of them said it was a black, dark colored, some said blue, some said Carhartt, but all said like a sh- kind of a short, stocky guy wearing a dark coat and a hoodie walking towards the bridge. Uh, and this was, and they, they knew all this like on day one. And the most the most damning part to me was, and I don't have the times right in front of me. I had out in my office, I had written them down. But there was this couple, or these two girls, I guess, who had taken a photo at the bridge, and it was time stamped, like for like say like at one forty seven, they took that picture, so they know they were at the bridge at that time. Then started walking away from the bridge, back towards you know back down the walking trail, back towards like where the entrances are. They said as they left the bridge and were walking away, they see this guy walking towards the bridge. Then, or those might have been the ones that, saw, that saw, somebody saw him walking towards the bridge, and somebody else saw him actually out on one of the platforms on the bridge. I think that was these people. Then, as they're walking away, they came across Abby and Libby, who were walking towards the bridge. So this is this is a one way trail to the bridge. They see. This guy standing on the bridge, which also tells us a little bit about what happened here, if these accounts are accurate. Th- this this predator was waiting there, and I'm not saying Richard Allen, because we don't know for sure that it was him, but whoever this was, was wait- it looks like they had walked out onto the bridge, stood on one of the little platforms, if you've ever seen the bridge, and sat there and waited. And then when Abby and Libby came, that's, I, so I, I do not think that Abby and Libby were targeted, uh, based on what we learned from this, but they, I think they were waiting for someone to get on the other side of them to where they couldn't come back across the bridge. Uh, it looks like Abby and Libby went past him. Then he followed them over there 
And that's where we see the photo of him coming at them, things like that. But as far as in the affidavit, so somebody sees him at the bridge. There's a timestamp when they were at the bridge because of a photo. When they're walking away from the bridge, they see Abby and Libby uh, on their way to the bridge. And then they said that after they went to the bridge and saw Abby and Libby, they were at another place in the park and they took a picture there. And that's timestamp. So we have like the exact window of time when Abby and Libby were walking to the bridge when they had seen this guy there. There are four witnesses that all described this guy. Now, cut to, we find out, they fucking interviewed Richard Allen uh, a couple days later, I think. Like, right right in that, 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 that window of time. And he says, yeah, I was there. I went for a walk about this time. In the exact same window of time. I was wearing a blue jacket. I went to the bridge at that time, which means the person that these witnesses saw on the bridge almost without question was fucking Richard Allen. Like by process of eliminating, but they, these girls were walking. No one else came. Here was the one person, the only person that was there they saw standing there. And then he admitted in 2017 that that person was him. And then nothing. And then and then there's there's witnesses that say they saw um they saw a man wearing the same type of clothes, the same description, then walking down the road. So instead of going back up and across the bridge, went through the woods up to the road because he had to walk back to his car, which we find out was apparently parked at the CPS building, which was something they didn't even tell us to look for a car there for three years before they gave the press conference and told us that there was a car there that we that like I complained about this a few weeks ago, and I'll go off even more now that that Doug Carroll has had this 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 obsession with keeping evidence from the public and wears it as a badge of honor. He waited three goddamn years to tell the public that the killer's car was sitting at that CPS thing, you know. And, and there was there was a few different descriptions of the car, and they knew back then that Richard Allen had said he parked his car there. So all these things, like all of that was known in 2017. What changed now is they brought him in for an interview in October. And all it says from the interview were that he acknowledged again he was there, said he did go on the bridge and did stand on the platform, again confirming what the girls, the, the witnesses saw. But this time they went to his house and did a search for firearms, which he voluntarily, they didn't have a warrant, he voluntarily let them go. And they found a Sig Sauer 40 caliber gun. And the new information that we get besides all this other stuff in the affidavit says that apparently that we learned, we learned that the other audio that in, we heard the guys down the hill that apparently what else was on there was one of the girls saying gun and then guys down the hill. And I, yeah. and it sounded like Zach, it sounded like they could see the gun in the, in part of the video. Was that, did I, did I remember that? That, right? that is what sounds like what's been known. And, and I am, this is hard. This is hard to know that there's a chance they've known since the beginning who this was. And yeah, it's unbelievably upsetting um, to, to get, to try to take the emotion out of it for me at the moment. We had a question about, about the shell casing. And I'm going to try to answer that really quick. Part of this affidavit was there is an unspent shell or there's an unspent bullet that was found between the bodies of the girls. Um, that they have forensically matched to the gun that Bob is just referring to right now. Um, the question was, is how is that done? How is an unspent casing uh, matched? So forensically, what they can go in, when a when a round is chambered into, a, into the, well, when a round is put into the gun, it's called chambered. When it's in the chamber of the gun, it's, it's, it may feel smooth to the finger, may look smooth. There is tons of little fibers. There's tons of little debris. They cause microscopic, they cause microscopic like scratches in the casing that allow, you know, under a microscope to allow the forensic team to see those scratches and line those up with another shell casing. They also match the extractor there. So on the, there, there's a piece in the gun for anyone that doesn't know called an extractor pen. It is a little hook. And on the backside of the bullet, there's a lip and that hook sits under the lip and will pull the spent casing out of the gun and flip it out of the gun. 
Well, it'll do that to an unspent shell if you rack it. And that also will leave a little depression or scratch that is unique to each firearm. Just based on, I mean, just sheer, I mean, you can't make everything exactly alike. So, I mean, everything is unique. So it's very easy to to match bullets like that. And that's what they've said they've done is they've been able to match the scratches on this unspent case to Richard Allen's Sig Sauer. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? And I'm, I'm so sorry. I just am wondering, is, is that in terms of like, whether they thought they had enough, is it possible that because there are people who say, including people who argue on behalf of folks they feel are falsely convicted, that say that that kind of ballistic evidence is, I don't want to say junk science, but I'm sure we've all heard on the side it, of it arguing will, in favor of an innocent person, yeah. that is not enough. That is not enough. Do you think that that's part of why they were he- I, they could they didn't do anything? I, I I don't know. But I mean, it, they didn't even test it, so they only just it's tested come it. up. I, it will be challenged, certainly. Yeah, it will one hundred percent be challenged. Or not, whether or not that they can actually match that to, and I have I have questions about that too. Whether you know, I, I'm not super confident in that. Um, but as far as why the shell was, somebody had asked, would, would it, um, why would it be, how there would it come out if they didn't, yeah. if they tried to fire, it doesn't sound like they tried to fire it. My, my assumption is what I told Zach earlier is this person watched too much TV, um, yeah. which is like as a fear tactic, mm-hmm. you see this a lot of times on TV where like the guy with the shotgun, even though the shotgun's already loaded, it'll cock the gun to scare somebody. Yes. My guess is the gun was already chambered. And then in order to try to inflict more fear, Cock the gun. <sighs> Something about that sound is terrifying, and that's all I can. Th- that's the only reason I can think of why they would have ejected a shell out onto onto the ground. No, correct. And if it's unspent, completely unspent, there they would have said had it been hit. You know, what I mean. So what what can happen is you can attempt to fire a gun. It will release the firing pin, hit the primer of the bullet, and the bullet will not. The bullet will not fire. It's a dud. And people will rack those out. But it doesn't appear that the firing pin has hit the the primer on this, which would also leave a mark. So I agree with Bob. Right. I think this is wholeheartedly was intimidation. He tried to rack it to look cool, to intimidate them, whatever it is. And it's there. Yeah. And, and, and that Dr. Shiloh said or a malfunction. And and I agree with Zach. The only reason I don't think that's that was the case was because I think to shoot because they can, all, they can also match those firing pin or at least attempt to match yeah. the firing pin marks and since there was nothing in the report about them trying to mark uh, match up dimples from the firing pin i'm assuming there wasn't one uh, because they were only talking about the striations from ejecting the round so um doesn't sound, and also no we don't have any more d de- we nobody reported hearing gunshots right i'm um, sure you would try not to make that noise yeah you- i don't and i've said for years in this that i always assumed there was a gun for intimidation but i don't think because because you had two girls that you controlled and got to there's to to get two girls to go down the hill to do what you want them to do when there's open woods in front of them you know i've always maintained that there had to be a gun to control them but i don't think that's other and and there was nothing in the report about how they were killed or anything else about the crime scene like that um so yeah so i i don't know as far as to me when i saw the the affidavit it pretty solidified to me why the DA wanted it sealed. Um, there's certainly nothing in there that could that could mess up a case. You have basically they have two things. They have witnesses that put Richard Allen at the crime scene. Richard Allen had, has already admitted multiple times that he was at the crime scene, and then they have the gun striations, which he admitted that was his gun. No, he's never lent it out to anybody. He has no reason for it to have been there or used by anyone else. Those are the only two things in the affidavit. So there's no way. Those two things could mess up a trial. I think the only re- I, I I think they they didn't want people to see that they had this information five years ago. I can't. I'm just guessing, but I I don't see why they wanted this sealed so badly. Um, it's frustrating. Now I'm sure there's more. Janet had asked when we were texting about this earlier. Like, do you think that he had maybe he had like been cleared for DNA or something? Uh, back then, because right, we're tr- we're all trying to find the reason why they didn't go search his home after they found out that he was the one and only person everybody was saying was out on the bridge at the time the girls were there. Um, 
And I don't have the end. And she said, well, maybe they test for DNA, but I don't think so because his defense attorney, when he was fighting against having this thing unsealed, all he, when he asked for there not to be bail or for them to be released and the charges dropped, all he said was, this case is flimsy. This is weak. I would have to believe that if they had DNA and they had tested it against Richard Allen and it didn't match him, that the defense attorney would have been shouting from the rooftops, he's already been cleared by DNA. So I don't right. think that's the case. Right. But I've always heard there is DNA on the crime scene. So I I don't know. There, there's still a lot we don't know. But the facts that we do know now, the police had them in 2017. They had them two days, you know, within a couple of days after. Right away, they had all the reports of him being there. And within a couple of days, he said, yeah, that, like, that was me. That was me that was on the bridge right then. Right. And even said, yeah, I've got a blue, I think he said a blue car heart jacket or something. You know, he acknowledged, it's just, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing when you, when you see all this. Yeah. There's in the affidavit, the I mean, in his affidavit or in this affidavit with the interview, I mean, he damn near says he's wearing the exact same clothes. Everything he has on almost yeah. matches what the guy's wearing. Why would the fuck would you not go for him? Why would you not at least investigate him a little more? Is that, go, that I'm search his house, go yeah, search his house, search his car. They didn't do any of that. It floors me that they've known this long. Maybe they haven't known that it's him, but they didn't attempt to do anything for this long. I and mean, we're five yeah. fucking years it, down well, the road. And I apologize. I, well, I'm what, I'm so upset. I apologize about my language. I know some people are not happy with it, but I I just cannot believe this anymore. I just for those of you that are listening to this on Friday. If you could hear Zach with that kind of emotion and and see that he's wearing a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer mm. unitard complete with the hood with the ears and the horns on it mm. while he's saying that it's really – it's a sight to see. It's very sweet, Zach. It's very sweet. And I don't mean that in a condescending way at all. But, but like it – it should it should be ridiculous and for some reason it's not at all. And like I, everyone's heart is just breaking with you, so – yeah, it was just it just occurred but to me you're, you but it's a, that. but that's a fair thing to point out. That's a very fair thing to point out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but yeah, we can I we can know. move on from that. And unless you have anything else you want to add, Janice, sorry. No, I'm just I'm just really I'm I'm really curious, and and I've and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to look at it from a wrongful conviction point of view, not because I believe like that this is, but I'm just trying to. I guess for me, I'm trying to think like we want the law to protect the innocent. So how what is how does this play out so that, you know, maybe there are things that like like, is it enough? And you want you want it to be enough for the right person to be caught and go to prison. I'm just saying it would be very interesting to hear how this played out, because if we felt certain after a case had already happened that all they had was it seemed like he was there, but no one for sure positively identified him as himself instead of just like a guy who kind of matched up. Like I'm just imagining in my head, mm-hmm. I am not saying at all that this person is not responsible. I'm just trying to but think of it know. from the, of course not. But that's, yeah. that's what, that's what I think when I think about this stuff in my mind, I'm like, well, if it were someone who were innocent, would you want the gun thing to be the thing? That's all. And I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. probably not making sense, but I'm super suspicious of the gun evidence, and and that's a little scary because it sounds like, based on the witness in his own statements, uh, again, I don't want to, I don't know, I, I I'm less, mad, I'm more upset about the 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 potential they had to get help from the community up front that they ignored, and the ability yes. to go search his home and search his car and get real evidence right. within days of the murders that they did. And that's what upset. And he could be innocent. I don't know. Um, I definitely have seen many um, cases that were where it was, there was faulty science used to match a bullet to a gun or something like that. So we'll see how that how that goes. But yeah, the the frustrating part is without that, that's not the most damning part of the to me. It was the timing of these people saying, "I'm walking this way. He's on the bridge. Abby right. and Libby are walking towards the bridge." And then he says, "Yep, that was me on the bridge." And then they, and then is it like, where, where did he go? When did he? Well, leave? it when also, did another yeah, because it also sounded human? like some didn't some. It sounded like someone in there said, "We saw him, and then we didn't see him again." Right. No where one saw you him would come expect back to see him again. Yeah. I, yeah. That was path. also. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's what I mean. Yeah. They're, 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 no one said they saw another adult male anywhere on the trail. No one saw him come back on the trail after the bridge. So that, that's the damning part of the evidence to me, much more so than the firearms evidence. Right. Well, and, and as much it, as we want know. this solved, we have to, have to remember, everybody has to remember, Richard Allen is innocent until proven guilty. This is all we know right now. As much as I want this case solved, as much as everybody wants this case solved, as much as whoever this monster is that committed this crime needs to be brought to justice, we have to remember that Richard Allen is innocent until proven guilty. As much, I mean, like, that is first and foremost at this point. Right. Yeah, definitely. And with that, we should, we're already- Let's uh, move on, yeah. Let's 30 let's minutes in, so we should probably move on to uh, our show, our case. Well, first of all, I, I know that there was a lot of uh, discussion about this on the Facebook page, not under the follow-up um, sort of heading, but uh, there were a couple of folks who definitely expressed, I think, a lot of the sentiment that was happening elsewhere about this episode, about the why. Um, and so I'll shout out Catherine and Kelly Z. Um, Catherine says, uh, I love the why. This is my favorite podcast because of your heart, Bob. Don't let people convince you that you now I'm crying. Don't let people convince you that you shouldn't lead with your heart. Caring doesn't make you biased. Um, a lot of people feel that way. And I, you know, I hope that that resonated for you. It, it I, I very much appreciate that. And I, I haven't heard for, I keep waiting to get an email from Sally. Um, who's the one that sent me the email that I, mm. that kind of inspired the, the, the episode about, but no, the, the response from people has been great. And I did, and, and I, and I hope a lot of what you took out of this is that I am listening. I, I know you guys hear me say all the time, like I don't do social media. I don't read comments. I, it's it, because of the ugliness that's out there. But, I, but I, I, I am always, you know, the emails, I do read them. I can usually tell in a paragraph if some, you know, in a couple of sentences, if someone is genuinely has something to say or if they're just here to complain or, or, or whatever. But, um, but no, I, I appreciate that sentiment and, and even your emotion, uh, Janet, with all of it and and everybody's response. I mean, I, I, the, the response I got was exactly what I expected. There are many people that were already all in with this with this case just because they liked the style that we were doing. There are many other people that really you know took the time to say something kind and tell me that they appreciated getting to hear the the personal side of this, and it did give them that motivation and the why they needed. And the people that are haters are still haters. So they just keep doing what they do. And it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay. A couple of uh, random snippets here and there. And then I think we'll get into some sort of themes uh, that we'll see um, happening over and over as people are kind of processing this episode and and listening, you know, and hearing from a mom uh, and, and, and all of that. Um, Soledad says, uh, can someone show or tell me how many days it was between the murders and the police getting a hold of Christian? Getting a hold of him? Like sort of when he show when the cops did show up and go, hey, we want to talk to you, you know, as as I'd have Janet to go back. I mean, we have his first interview transcript up. Um, I I'd, I'd have to go back and review the police reports. He never there was never an issue getting a hold of him. Um, well, just I think I rem- she's saying just like when someone got around to kind of. I think it was in within, within the first week. Um, okay. Robert, when he was talking to Javier and Javier had said that, you know, I told him about, you know, there there was the hike and I was worried it was you and stuff. And they were asking this question. Robert just, vol- just went into the right. police station uh, to give his. And then I think they interviewed Christian. I want to say it was about a week or so later. I have to go back through the the documents to find out for sure. Okay. Uh, Chris says, Jana mentions Christian working with Jackie and Lois. Do we know who they are? Is Jackie his girlfriend slash now wife? Yes, Jackie is is his wife now. And and I have an interview. One of the first, as I mentioned, when I interviewed Jana, my very first trip, which was now over a year ago when I went out to begin gathering in, intelligence on this case, um, I, I interviewed a lot of the family members. And actually, I have an interview with Janet. I have an interview with – actually, Janet and Lois, I interviewed the two of them together. That's Christian's wife and then their friend, um, Lois, who also worked at the water park with them. And so even this episode, I had to kind of go through like I have interviews with uh, with Robert's wife and then with Christian's wife and with Robert's uncle and with Christian's mom. And, you know, I have all the – and so I just had to to pick the one that I remember. I, I picked Jana in her interview because 
I remember it being the most impactful to me. Mm. I remember being in that room when she was had we were having the conversation that you guys heard myself with tears coming down my face it was it was it was and and that was i had looked at the at the case and i had screened the case and done the initial investigation the stuff that we do that looks like this is i think there's a good chance there's a wrongful conviction here um but then it was when i was talking to her and that was that was to me the thing that because a lot of times it's to pick a case amongst all these cases there's just there's something that has to grab you or grab me and it was like in that moment it was just like oh something needs to be done here and um it was just very it was very impactful and moving to me so i wanted you guys to hear it because that really was it's not my you know, of course the people that say the things that say the things that they're like oh wow a crying mom and that's why you took the case that doesn't mean anybody's innocent well nobody's saying that the, the evidence is what leads me to believe that they're innocent, but that personal touch is what grabbed me then, and I, I just wanted you guys to hear it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Jessica, wait, but lo- lots of uh, lots of conversations happening and 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 stuff happening in the follow up uh, post on Facebook surrounding this sort of idea of Robert and Christian having any kind of history at all, as we talk about past behavior future behavior, stuff like that. So I'm going to read Jessica's, but shout out to Andrew and Mary and uh, Mary hey, Elizabeth and Britt. Quick to interject oh, real quick. The Christian yeah, interview sure. transcript is from September 28th. Okay. That the one so, where, yeah, that's, that's the one he's right. at the police station though, right? Correct. Oh, but there's, okay. I believe he was in, I believe the police talked to him first at his dad's house, but, uh, and that may not be up there, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Thanks, Zach. Um, so I'm going to read Jessica's, but, uh, do we know if Robert and Christian had any history of getting any kind of trouble together as teens? If two people are close enough to commit a family annihilation together, I would kind of expect to see some prior behavior. Uh, minor vandalism, bullying, petty crimes, something. Um, and if there isn't past behavior like that, uh, Britt had had wanted to know, like, is that something that can that gets brought up by a good defense attorney? Like to reiterate to the jurors like this, they you know, they there's no reason for us to ever think that these kids were capable of this based on, you know, past behavior or anything like there, that. There definitely is. I mean, they've they've had their and we're going to a lot of the people that are just real excited to hear all the bad stuff about about the case, you know, or the guilty side of the case want to hear. But, but yeah, like, we, of course, these guys are they were on trial for murder on a very weak circumstantial case. So, of course, the D.A. dug up everything they could find from. Uh, recorded phone calls to um, to love letters while Christian's getting ready to go to war or to um, uh, th- things for like when they're past. I don't, I don't, there was a, there was something, I don't think it's in the report, but like Christian's mom told me about um, where Christian was being bullied in school uh, one day. And then, and like he had taken like a bat or something to school with him because he was being bullied by this gang. Um, and then there was no fight, but he got in trouble for having the bat there or something like that. But there's, there's there's little things like that, but I've I've never heard anything where the two of them together were doing like got in trouble or broke the law or anything like that. Okay. But we whatever's there, I'll tell you this. I'm speaking of just yeah. memory from that stuff. When we get into Robert and Christian, which is where we're launching into mm-hmm. now, um, we're going to go through every single thing that's in there. So yeah, we we might come across a, a handful of those in these questions because yeah. of course this conversation that you had with Janet brought up a lot of questions that I think are probably going to be answered in the case against yeah. Robert and Christian when we get into it. I'm gonna read them unless you'd like me to skip them and you can just say we'll get to it. We'll get to that. Great question. No go ahead Hold and ask them because that. if it's something yeah. I know off the top of my head okay. I'll, I'm happy to okay, happy to answer it. I just I just don't want to give like with that with them being in trouble and stuff I'm trying to I don't I don't want to give you wrong information because sure. I, I know there's some stuff there nothing gotcha. but i know there's nothing there's nothing serious no breaking laws anything like that um, yeah. or nothing with them doing something together um, okay uh kim says on the podcast i've learned about brady violations ineffective assistance of counsel etc as things that can impact the integrity of a conviction but a sleeping jury a judge shopping for wine also how did they know this is there no pathway to say that the convicted person didn't get a fair trial based on things like this? Seems like a big issue if the jury members weren't conscious during parts of the trial. Lots of questions from folks about that. Yeah, and you got to remember, most of this stuff comes from observations. From I've heard from like three different people that 
you know, that the, the judge was shopping for wine. I don't know. I, there's no way to verify that. I don't know who saw that. Um, so I don't know. As far as the sleeping jurors, I heard that from a bunch of people that were in the courtroom, um, including one of the attorneys told me because they said they, they, they were going to bring it up, but they were, they were, everybody was afraid to make the jury mad. Hmm. Uh, you know, so right. they were, they, they didn't want to go to the judge and say, Hey, they're sleeping and then piss the jury members off. But <sighs> that seems to be as far as the judge and the wine, that's what I've been told. I have no way to verify. I don't have a way to verify either one, but mm-hmm. many people, including lawyers have told me that there were jurors that were sleeping during the trial. Yikes. Um, some more questions about the jury. Teresa wants to know, and I know she's here in the chat too. Hi, Teresa. Uh, was the jury polled after the trial? Um, we'll get into that when I okay. when we get through like the trial and all of that stuff. Okay, good. Yeah, because Sarah and Caroline and Rhonda, um, everybody was sort of wondering about, you know, will we hear from jurors? Were they interviewed? Um, will we find out more about kind of the pressure that they may have been facing? Because you had mentioned, you know, the sort of conviction on a Friday, that sort of thing um, mm-hmm. in our last follow up. Uh, and Liz even wondered, you know, were there any ever like motions for mistrial or anything like that while stuff was going on? It sounds like no, if if they were even afraid to say anything about sleeping jurors. Yeah, not that I'm aware of, but that, that's when we, we we're going to go through the actual like the the, the procedural part of the trial. I, I will tell you this. What I do what I do know for a fact is that the because several people I don't know if it was in the follow up thread, but people have asked me like, you know, how do you know like how many people vote? Because I said in the episode that right. people were voting not guilty. Um, I, I I I have on pretty good authority. Very good authority that the initial vote was 50-50, guilty, not guilty, on day one. Hmm. So they went from that to 100% guilty by day twelve or by day 10. Hmm. Zap, what were you going to say? I am very interested to see what was presented at court against Robert and Christian. Because so far in the podcast, and Bob, I know that you know more than we do, but me as a listener and all these other listeners... You know, we know where the investigation has taken us, and I appreciate that you've taken us on the the journey of this investigation, which is clearly hasn't brought us to Robert and Christian, but there is stuff that they had to present at trial to convict them. So I am just very interested in seeing what was actually presented at trial that could have possibly persuaded anybody to vote against or that they were guilty. I'm glad you because a lot of people ask that. So if 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 you don't mind, Janet, without your question, I'll give you a real yeah. quick Reader's Digest breakdown. Um, j- j- just real quick. So they had, they had, uh, like Javier come up and say that Robert was supposed to go on the hike. And then they had Robert, um, Robert's testimony too, I think was read in, but, um, so, the, so they, they establish that Robert had planned to go on a hike with her. Then they have the cell phone expert say, look, these two calls, you can tell that they're on their way towards the mountain and then their cell phone are out of service and there's no service there. So we can hypothesize that they were there. Um, it gets where you, you heard a few people ask about, you know, Javier's lies. Uh, that was like Javier testifying that he never told Robert about the body in the wheelbarrow that he didn't even know about the body in the wheelbarrow until days later. We know that's not true. Um, so that was, so, so they, then they established, well, now Robert's got guilty knowledge of the body in the wheelbarrow with that. Um, and then there there wasn't much to it, and then and then you have the business card that's you know, again somewhere between if they even found it out there between two hundred and eight hundred yards away from the crime scene somewhere we don't know where uh, it was uh, that had Christian's DNA and fingerprint on it, so that was that was kind of the nail in their coffin. And then they had a you know they they had arrested them, were preparing for trial, dropped the charges the first time mm-hmm. with the judge. There was just nothing there. There wasn't enough there. And right. then between those times, uh, uh, an informant comes forward and says, hey, 10 years ago, I was working at the water park with Christian and I heard him confess to this. And so that – and then they didn't even – there's a whole story there. We're going to get into all this. I'm just trying to bust through this real quick. But right. um, they didn't get to cross-examine him. They sprung him on the defense in a pretrial hearing where – or at the grand jury, I think, and he testified there – the, and the defense couldn't cross it because they didn't know who he was. They wouldn't tell him who he was. So he gives this testimony. And then at trial, the judge allows them That's... not to have him testify, but read his testimony in Oof. so he can't be cross-examined. That's shocking. So that was kind of the the nail in the coffin. And then the rest of it is just 
the rest of it is just kind of character assassination stuff, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, you know, Christian's well, going like to war. Well, and like the, the, the shit, well, and what you guys are saying, and I appreciate everything you're saying, Bob, I appreciate you breaking it down, but I want to hear, and that's why I'm glad we're getting into this, I want to hear what they say. I want to hear what they say about the character assassination. Like, whether I believe it or not, I want to know. I want to know what they have, because I think it's important for all of us to know. There's a reason these guys were convicted, so I want to see why. And I appreciate you breaking it down and kind of showing us what's there, but that's why I'm excited right now. That's why my fire is relit, and I think a lot of people are relit right now, because we want to see the case against Robert and Christian, and we want to know why they were convicted and how we can help. Yeah, and that's what, as I was, what I was about to say was the character assassination stuff is uh, there's things like before Christian is going to war, um, writing a letter to his wife where he says, I can't wait to get there and kill these Afghanis. Um, or something along those lines. And so, you know, they paint him as, you know, he's, he's a vicious murdery type of person. And then pictures of Robert on his Facebook with, uh, or my, whatever it was with like guns and fire and stuff like that. So they like use all these, um, these, these things, which again, we'll get into all of them, but it's just like, uh, as, as I, somebody I was talking to online the other day about, I said, imagine if someone went through every private text message, email, photo everything you've ever done letter you've written and then pulled them all out and exposed them to people like most people have stuff in there they're probably not not proud of in this case they they were looking for something anything so it was like oh here he likes guns he likes fire that fits and you know he said he's when he's going to war where his job is literally to kill people he's saying that i'm looking forward to getting there and doing this to his wife so he's a killer you know it, it, it it's it's stuff like that and that's again. We're going to go through all that in detail, but that's just kind of a, a, a you know thirty thousand foot look at kind of the overview of it. Was you know a circumstantial case. The linchpin is the business card, and and then make try to make them look like the type of guys that would do this. Okay. Uh, speaking of the the sort of military side of things, um, Kristen uh, says, "Can we hear from a special forces op about the process Christian had to go through to become special forces? Was this information allowed during the trial?" Which was such that was a really interesting tidbit in the episode yeah. where you said that you know you've been reached out to and people are like, "There's no way that he would have ever made it to where he is if he had com- if he had committed a crime like this." Yeah, there's um, so, so it, it wasn't in the trial, and and I don't know actually. Right now, I have to go through all of the pretrial motions and stuff, and what because I don't know if it was not allowed to be brought in, or I, I, if my understanding was right, they were only allowed to. From when I, it's been a while since I read those pretrial motions, but like they were only allowed to tell parts of his service. Like I don't think they could say he won a medal of valor, putting his body in front of a bullet to save somebody's life. I don't think they were allowed to say that mm-hmm. stuff. It was like they could just do some very basic stuff. Um, and then of course you run the risk of, well, then they can then turn that into, well, look, he's a violent guy. He's a, you know, he's, so I, I think that was all left out as far as the, but I, I'm trying to get a hold of right now, um, the Ranger that you heard Jana mention, um, who she calls Ranger, Ranger Ray, mm-hmm. uh, is the guy believes the guy that Christian, whose life Christian saved that day. Um, but, and if I can't get a hold of him. Then I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna find somebody who is an army ranger, and uh, so if anybody in the in the listeners, whoever knows someone, reach out to me, um, because I've I've had some several special forces people again like send me emails to tell mm-hmm. me the stuff that I told you. But I'd like to talk to either Ray or somebody who's like a current ranger who can explain that process because I hadn't even thought about that. The 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 psychological evals and the polygraphs and everything they have to go through in order to get. Um, to become a ranger. So we'll have that information coming soon enough. Cool. A um, lot of questions, too, about this sort of extension of the conversation we've had previously about Javi and about his parents and what they did for a living and wondering if that extends out into, you know, the judge and so forth, like Shelley and Hope. We're wondering if the, you know, the judge had any known connections to either of Javi's parents or to Ron. Is there is there a history of this judge excluding evidence of third party culpability? Um, everyone obviously very interested still in this idea of, you know, it, it being a, a case which does happen where a judge rules. No, you can't bring in any third part party culpability. Um, and 
you know, Teresa reminds us, like, do, do we know exactly which law enforcement DA prosecutors were assigned to the file or their other family connections that had both political and law enforcement ties to the case? So lots of swirling around that we'll probably get into more. Maybe yeah, during I'll tell you this. The there's a whole the politics in this case run deep and it's going to be at least an episode in and of itself when we get there as far as the I mean, I mean it's deep. I mean, there, there, there's a whole people from the Valley probably remember the political sc- scandal where someone running for DA was stealing his opponent's campaign signs. Uh, then he was turned in to the authorities by none other than Javier uh, Garcia senior. And, and like he was mixed up in that. And then when the case was dropped the first time, there was there there was the the literally the DA I believe and 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 other people in the prosecution team were being subpoenaed to appear to answer questions of misconduct in this case and then they just dropped the charges so that went away and they never had to testify and then there you know, there's another election coming and then all of a sudden they're arrested again there's a lot there's mm-hmm. a lot there so we'll have, we'll have to break all that down later okay. Yeah, shout out to Amy and Dave, too, who are, who are wondering about, you know, campaign contributions and ways to figure out, you know, sort of track those conflicts of interest. Um, real, real quick, I want to yeah. respond to Amy. Oh, Amy, chat. yeah. Uh, Amy does not have to be current. Um, uh, shoot me an email or a private message on on one of the social medias. Uh, she says that she has a friend who is a former ranger and is now a therapist getting his PhD. That, that would sounds be amazing. I would, lo- I would love to talk yeah. to that person. That sounds amazing. Amy, right on. Rhonda says, can you interview a criminal defense attorney from California to explain the no alternative suspect ruling? I read that this is a standard ruling in California and not just something made up for this trial. It's definitely not something just made up for this trial. And yes, I um, I've already interviewed an attorney uh, about it. And so that'll be coming up. I will say very quickly that this episode inspired a lot of people to weigh in on the follow up page. So you really riled everybody up because it was a robust uh, list of like a lot of really great juicy thoughts and questions and long paragraphs that were really yeah. interesting and cool that I can't read all of. So I'm trying to sort of sum up, but I don't want to like misspeak for anyone. Um, OK, so here's what uh, what Lilia says. By the end of this season, do you think we are going to have heard all the evidence and information from potential testimony Christian's defense put together that his mom said the judge said could not appear in court other than the red truck, which is significant? Yeah, I mean the uh, the intention. Well, obviously, we'll go through all the evidence that's in the file. Not even not even on the state side, everything that's in the file wasn't presented at trial. I mean, pretty much probably ninety percent of what you heard so far wasn't presented at trial because it was all alternative suspect stuff. So yeah, we'll go through everything that was done at trial, and then also yeah, we'll get into the defense that wasn't able to be used that information, and then we'll be doing our our own you know the the, the last phase of this process for those of you who've been around for a long time is hopefully we have a direction to go and then we launch into our our own investigation to see if we can figure out who actually did it. Great. Lilius, I see you're in the chat. I'm glad I said it right. I think I just said it right again, hopefully. Let's talk about the DNA a little bit more. Uh, Sarah and Steve uh, asking questions about that DNA on the wheelbarrow handles and Becky's ankle. Uh, are those the same? Like, we can't remember if you said it's the same profile, like what's on the wheelbarrow and what's on ankle or socks is I don't the, remember either we're, we have a forensic episode coming up soon and I have I've already, I've set up to speak with um, a, a DNA expert uh, that that, I've, that has, has the files and is going to explain to us what they because you know she's one of the ones that told me a long time ago that the the DNA on the business card is I'll say problematic um, yeah. which we'll get into when when I'm able to talk to her and interview her which I'll probably be interviewing here in the next couple of weeks Good. Great. I'm excited to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That's everybody's wondering about that. That DNA that doesn't match anybody, whether it was run through CODIS or if it was just compared to specific victims. So or, or I'm sorry if it was compared to specific suspects. Um, I know Megan had that question. Uh, Jackie. Yeah. So what we'll I get into there, that. there was DNA that did that Robert and Christian were excluded from on Becky's ankles, on the wheelbarrow and on the uh, the Riverside Sheriff's Association pen. There was DNA on all those things that didn't match them. So, of course, were deemed not relevant by the investigators. And instead, they went with the card that was up to a half mile away somewhere out in the desert. Man, lighthearted yeah. moment for a second. I forgot about the pen and the whole pen argument. 
So that's funny you yeah, brought that, that back Dr. up. Dr. Shiloh back sent me that pen. Uh, she was at a conference somewhere. Really? And the, the, the Riverside Sheriff Association was there, and it's the same pen I got in the mail a while back and opened it up. And, uh, yeah, I totally forgot some, about that uh, pen until you just so said that. Stickers. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the You bring up the card. Definitely a lot of uh, talk about the card as well. Kim and Jana and, and Kathy, um, you know, trying to get sort of revisit the idea we know we talked about it and we talked about the sort of garbage heap or the the dumpster and mm-hmm. the maybe place that things were getting discarded um wondering about this you know not it not being at the crime scene is it represented on a map somewhere in no. the files that we have access to great super no. helpful uh, no, it, it, they literally said at trial that it was somewhere between 200 and 800 yards away from Becky's body somewhere out in the desert, none of it. And, and again, I had mentioned in passing, but I'll to, to clarify what I was talking about is, is on YouTube somewhere. There is a uh, a video of a news anchor anchor talking about the business card, and in that interview, she says that their source told her they turned that business card over to the police. Right. But the police said. They found, which you know, could be. I I've tried to get a hold of that news station a while back, and they said for number one it was too long ago. Number two, they wouldn't reveal their source anyway. Um, hoping to get more information on that. But at first, I did she misspeak? I don't know. But then when you come when you compare, couple that with the police don't know where they found it. I mean, they didn't say it was like here or here. Two hundred two football fields to a half mile, somewhere in that range is the range they give where they found the business card. And, and then someone mm-hmm. tells this reporter that they didn't find it at all, that they gave it to them. Okay. Because it sounds to me like, I mean, Andrew had posted that LeClaire had done a report that's that he, in which he stated that he found the business card the morning after the murders while following the wheelbarrow tracks, photographed it, and collected it 180 yards from where the wheelbarrow was located. I guess there's a, maybe a report out there somewhere. Don't there's know. All, there's but, all, they're all yeah. conflicting reports. Okay. Where, okay. where they were found. Um, and that's, and that's uh, Nicole in the YouTube chat says, why do you guys dismiss the card as evidence? The wheelbar tracks are next to the business card. Depends on which report you're reading. Hmm. We, we don't have a picture of the card near the business or the card near the wheelbarrow tracks. We just Boy, have a picture. That would have like, been really helpful. Yeah. It's just like a picture of it out in the desert somewhere uh, is all the only picture we have. And I'm not dismissing it as evidence, but you know, we know a few things. We know that Becky had told, told Jacob that she had cleaned her room. We know there's a picture of Robert that was outside on the trash heap, the giant overflowing trash heap. There was southerly wind, so it would make sense if she had stuff collected there that that she had that had any connection to those guys that maybe was outside. It could have blown out there if it was out there. And then the fact that when it was tested for DNA, they said there's no usable DNA and no usable fingerprints on it. And then later, another lab says, oh, well, just kidding. We have a, a match to Christian for the DNA and the fingerprint. And that's why I can't articulate this to you. That's why I want to have the DNA expert come on that says that that's pro- – it, it, it's along the lines of uh, if anybody watched like uh, Making a Murderer where they said you know they found touch DNA someplace on the car in the, mm-hmm. in the Making a Murderer case. Mm-hmm. And the DNA experts was like – I don't remember the numbers, but it was something like touch DNA. There's usually some, some unit of measure, right? There's usually like 200 to 500 whatever cells. And they're like, there's 27,000 cells in this. Like it's, it's way too, like it, it, something doesn't add up. Um, so it's something along those lines, plus the fact that it wasn't found to begin with. Plus we don't know if it was connected to the crime. Uh, there's, so it's not being dismissed, but it's certainly questionable. Right. Uh, Valeria says, in your upcoming trip to California, have you considered visiting the DA office, courthouse, sheriff's office, or whoever would be likely to hold physical evidence to see what else there is Uh that maybe wasn't included in the file, um, things like Becky's journal, any transcripts of my MySpace posts or messages, anything like that. They went through that stuff, but they didn't. They, they didn't find anything that's in the in the file, anything useful. Gotcha, uh, Liz. And I saw. Um, I think someone brought it up in here as well, just a little bit earlier. Yeah. Hi, Rebecca. I see you in there too. I saw your question a little earlier, wondering about uh, Liz. Uh, also asked this question, Jana sort of mentioning that it seemed that the red truck was allegedly connected to Javi. Is that is that because believe, people thought the little red truck and the red truck that, you know, I we, believe we, so. I believe yeah. the, I believe the because connection is just that um, 
Nick Corline drove a little red truck. Okay. And Chris uh, says, you know, while we know that the fire chief uh, had and the fire department noted the red truck, did any were there there were no other neighbors or anything that also reported seeing that truck, right? No, yeah, no, it was it. it was just the fire trucks and it was way down at the end of the neighborhood. So which, you know, timing wise would have worked if someone because I still maintain Jim Clemente agreed uh, based on witness that, that, that whoever did this didn't park at the crime scene. They would have it. So you have to remember this. It's so quiet and so dark out there that the flickering light of the fire got people's attention. Three, I think three different people called 911. But none of those people saw a car drive down Alpine Road. Like nobody, nobody saw that. Um, so it, it would certainly seem that they parked the car remotely somewhere, left on foot, then got in their car and left. And right. and so that the timing of where and when the truck, the fire truck came across that red truck could fit. It, it's, it seems like a very, you know, it's a hell of a coincidence. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, everybody's kind of curious, like a couple of Laurens and Mike uh, are interested in sort of where in the appeal process, like where we are with the, where their case stands in the courts now. Is that something you want to get into here? You want to talk about that more later? Yeah, I mean, they're they're getting ready to file their habeas, um, both both of them right now. They're due. I think their state habeases are due in the spring or or late winter. Uh, they're coming up, but those are being worked on right now. Okay, uh, Jill, wondering about just being in touch with family and and on there is the family on board and. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, just kind of coming back around to those questions now that we've heard a little bit more from Christian's mom. Yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to all the family. Um, there there are some restrictions now because of the legal proceedings going on right now where I don't sure. really have access to um, to do interviews with the guys or to talk about the case because they're in the middle of getting ready to file their uh, their habeas. But, but yeah, I'm in contact with uh, people from the family, both families regularly. Great. Um, Mary says, what can we, the Truth and Justice Army, do to help Robert and Christian? And Chris wants to know, are the guys at the same facility? Can we write them, et cetera? Yeah, I assume, um, and Zach, maybe you can look that up, but I, but I, I believe the, their mailing addresses are on the website. Um, that's where we usually put them. But yeah, they're at the same facility, and they were actually cellmates um, when we started this process. I think I think I was told that one of the, that they were they were moved. They're not in the same cell anymore. Um, but yeah, they're in the they're in the same facility. And there, there's a whole other hour of that interview where Jana was talking about, and I just tried to cut down to the more relevant portions of it about what they're doing. But I've actually talked to Robert on the phone. Like they are they've they've been there for three years, and they are they're doing all of these. They're running like AA classes and doing like therapy. So they're, they're, they've they've done a lot. Christian almost has his degree. He's been working on going to school. Why is there? And I think Robert is too. Like they as as much as you can in prison. They're both they're both thriving. They're um, they're well liked amongst the community. They're doing their best to help other people that are in there to um, you know to kind of improve their lives as best they can while while they're in there. Great. Well, I'd love to say I could find the addresses. I can't find them on the website. Okay, well, I'll have to get with Katie on that because I apologize about that because usually there are usually we have them up. Okay, well, that's all I have today. Um, anything else you want to add, Zach? You got anything else you want to bring up in this in this part? <laughs> uh, not that I can think of, honestly. Like I've already said multiple times, I'm really excited to get into the case against Robert and Christian. I think it's going to be really interested because, uh, again, as I've said numerous times in this same episode, I want to see what was presented for myself. Yes, yes, indeed. Yep, and that all that is coming. I'm gonna. I'm working on doing the uh, getting the financials episode out, so we can knock that off this week. Uh, and then we'll start to move in the case. And then and then the next week I'm going out to uh, out to the desert and Janet's going to be there with me. Dr. Shiloh's going to be there helping out too. So hoping to track down a couple of interviews. I'm really, really interested right now in um, talking to more people that knew John. I've got a lot – because of the finances, uh, I have a lot of questions about John and kind of his habits and stuff like that. Yes, so, indeed. Uh, we're going to keep working on that and then we're going we're gonna to start breaking down the – the case, all the all those nitty gritty details you're looking for, Zach, about Robert and Christian. Sounds, Sounds great. good. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Great to have you in the live chat.
Yep. Thanks everybody for joining us on YouTube, especially in the evening. Uh, and uh, again, don't forget that when you hear this episode, Friday the 2nd, if you're interested in going to Obsessed Fest in Dallas next year, uh, now's the time to get those tickets before they are sold out. And with that, we'll let you guys go. We'll talk to you next week. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com Our follow-up logo was created by me and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. For all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. Is that good enough? All right. Um... Now I'm going to pee. Oh, really that's good. I just heard the YouTube and it totally st- stop saying that. We're about to go live. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the first word? That'll yeah. do. That'll do. Oh, ahoy, friends. Uh oh. Dr. in the house. He's not just wearing Christmas jammies, he's wearing a Christmas onesie. It is a onesie. That's very exciting. He looks so cute. I mean, that. I- Listen, I don't know if there's a way to say this that doesn't sound weird, but you look really cute with, like, little reindeer antlers and ears. Look, this is the only deer Bob ever sees, so. Wait, are we starting? Yes.